Mike Krzyzewski joins us on Sports Byline, Hall of Fame coach for Duke for 42 years. He led the Blue Devils to 15 ACC tournament championships, 13 Final Fours, and five NCAA championships. He is the winningest coach in Division I men's basketball with over 1,200 victories, and he coached the U.S. national team to the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Olympic gold medals and also won two World Basketball Championships. He grew up in Chicago, and he played his college ball at West Point, where he was later the head coach at the age of 28. Mike, let's go back to where it all began. Tell me a little bit about your family and growing up in Chicago. Well, it was the best, Ron. I grew up in right in the inner city of Chicago in a Polish, yet a little bit of a Ukrainian neighborhood. Yeah, right now, uh, it's called Ukrainian Village in, in inner city Chicago, and it was like a village. And... Uh, both my parents, uh, my grandparents, who I never knew, uh, came from Poland. So my parents were first generation, and uh, mom only had an eighth grade education, a cleaning lady at the Chicago Athletic Club. My dad was two years of high school and an elevator operator and an uh, odd job person at Willoughby Tower on Michigan Avenue in, in Chicago. And, uh, you know, it was... It was. They were great. We had such a close family, and I learned from both of them and from my uh, my aunts and uncles the dignity of work, and uh, and as a result of their uh, commitment to education and putting me and my brother through private schools, uh, I was able to go to the United States Military Academy, and uh, so uh, I, I grew up in a in a great way and. My buddies in Chicago are still my buddies. My buddy Mo has been my best friend since I was six years old. So uh, good, good roots, really good roots. How did you end up choosing West Point, and how did it fit into your basketball interests? Well, to be, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't think it would fit into my basketball interests <laughs> at all. And uh, uh, I was an All-State player uh, my senior year. I was the leading scorer in the Catholic League for two years in Chicago, and I was recruited. It wasn't recruitment. This is the 60s now. It wasn't like it is now where you had lists and all that. And But I was probably either going to go to Creighton or Wisconsin. And uh, Coach Knight, who had just become the head coach at West Point, came in and spoke to my high school coach late. This is spring of my senior year. And uh, uh, and said, would I have an interest? And, and my coach says, he better have an interest. <laughs> and so Coach Knight went to our house, and after the visit, he left. And uh, my mom and dad said, well, you, you have to go to West Point. And uh, that's where presidents go to school. And uh, I said, I don't want to be a president. I want to be a point guard. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I literally fought them. Uh and they never let their foot off the gas pedal. And uh, and finally, after a couple of weeks, I told them, "All right, I'm going to. I'll go to West Point." This was in June, and the first day of Beast Barracks, their their summer training was one July. And I, Ron, I call it the best decision I never made. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like if I didn't have my parents. And, uh, pushing me to do what they knew what would be the best. They weren't pushing me into a profession, 
like you have to be a warrior, you have to be this, you have, but you you have to go to West Point because what could happen would be so much better than if you would go someplace else. And I trusted them. At the end of the day, even though I was a smart aleck teenager in the inner city, I did love and trust my parents. And uh, again, it, it None of the stuff that you mentioned at the start of this would have happened if that decision was not made. And it wasn't made by me. It was made with my parents really helping me at a time where I really didn't know how to make that level of decision. What was the most uh, impressive thing about Bobby Knight when you met him? The, well, he's really smart and just physically impressive and how he explained things. And, you know, I, I've really got a double dose of something that I don't know how many people get a double dose of this. I went to the best leadership school in the world, the United States Military Academy, and then I was the point guard and captain of a team that was coached by one of the iconic coaches in the history of the game where you weren't not only learned the game, but you learned uh, about technique, especially defense and, uh, and preparation. Uh, the, the, you know, most people, everyone wants to win, uh, uh, but not as many people want to prepare to the level that you need to prepare in order to win at a high level. And so I learned quite a bit from him, and I learned quite a bit from West Point. And to do that in a four-year period, I didn't realize that it was difficult many times. I didn't realize how lucky I was to be getting that in my four years uh, at the military academy. After graduating in a three-year stint as an Army officer, you began your coaching career as an assistant for Bobby at Indiana. And a year later, Mike, you became the Army's head coach at 28 years old. Now, I've always felt, that, Mike, that that was one of the most important decisions you made in your coaching career, coaching at an institution like Army with the discipline, type of athletes that they had, and the structure of the program. Am I right in that observation? Yeah, and you know what you, uh, just to add on to it, uh, what you said is true, uh, is the fact that, one, I wasn't necessarily the first choice there, uh, uh, because a lot, of, in the mil- a lot of people in the military there felt, because I got out of the service, that that would be a bad example for the cadets, mm-hmm. and where, but a, a good number of people then said, no one would know the military academy better or what a cadet thinks or how to motivate uh, than Mike would. And, uh, and they were right about that. And I inherited a program that the two years before they were seven and 44. So for the five years that I was at West Point, I had a chance to build a program. I had a chance to, my wife and I, to do everything, you know, paint bleachers, put down rugs, <laughs> uh, do everything. And and obviously with the help of my staff and uh, the main help is from my team, but uh, I also coordinated a lot of my classmates who were still in the military were teaching at West Point at that time. So I... I coordinated support groups and things like that, just trying to figure out how to win. And all that 
benefited me so much uh, when I took over the program at Duke because they we were in kind of a rebuilding process, and then we had to build a culture here. And I had just spent five years doing it, work at a different level, but still, you know, the, the steps that you have to take, and I got a lot more help here at Duke, uh, really benefited me greatly. I was just going to say, after five seasons, you did take the Duke job in 1980. Why did you make that decision? What was it about Duke uh, that made you decide to take that job? Well, uh, the year before, I was actually offered the Vanderbilt job, and I felt I wasn't ready to go. And then the next year, uh, when the season ended after my fifth year, I was offered Iowa State, and I was they were they were through with their selection process they they offered me the job uh, duke was just beginning and i i told the people of iowa state you know i'm not the leader for duke right now but i feel i need to go through that process and after about a 3 week period and three interviews uh they offered me the job, and Tom Butters, my AD, um, believed in me. And an interesting thing, you know, a lot of people, many, many people go on interviews. And, you know, so how do you prepare for them? Sometimes people say, what do you think they want to hear? And I went into the interviews saying, I'm going to tell them straight answers to every question because I want them to know who I am. And if who I am is what they want, then when I'm there, I can continue to be who I am, not what I said I was going to be. And Tom Butters, Ron, loved that. And uh, that was the start of an amazing relationship that led to us building, you know, one of the one of the best brands in the sports world and, a, and a, an outstanding basketball program. Mike Krzyzewski is with us, the Hall of Fame coach for 42 years at Duke. We're talking about his life and also about his career. And we'll talk more about that as we continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on America's Sports Talk Show, Sports Mike Krzyzewski is with us here on Sports Byline, the Hall of Fame coach for 42 years at Duke. We're talking about his first job at that level with that type of team and that was back in 1980. Uh, what was the most challenging thing in rebuilding that Duke program? Well, yeah, the competition, to be quite frank with you, you know, there were no one-and-dones at that time. The ACC was really the elite conference with Dean Smith and Lefty Drizel, Terry Holland, these coaches and the programs that they built. So uh, the, the amount of talent you needed – to compete against them was the was the first challenge, and you weren't going to get it in one year. Uh, you, it was going to be where you have to get it, add to it, nurture it, let it grow, uh, because no one was. I think Jordan left after three years, but most for the most part, all those great players were there. Uh, you're playing against old, really talented teams with professional with NBA players on them and uh, so the recruiting you know we didn't have a good recruiting year the first year we recruited too many 
guys and didn't get our top guys, and we changed our recruiting philosophy to go after a few and to develop amazing relationships with them so that they would come and believe in us before we had anything for them to believe in, you know, any accomplishments. And it, by doing that, we had the best recruiting class in the country with Mark Allery, Jay Billis, David Henderson, Weldon Williams, Bill Jackman, and, and Johnny Dawkins, which was the key. He was, you know, the 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 uh, not that the other guys, Allery, Billis, they were elite players too, but Johnny was... Now, he ended up being a lottery pick and the national player of the year. And the next year, we added Tommy Amaker to that. And then that group, Ron, grew fast, but grew together. And the freshman class that I mentioned, they were 11 and 17 as freshmen. And by the time they were seniors with a junior point guard in Amaker, uh, we we won the most games ever in the history of the NCAA at that time, 37. And we lost in the national championship game to Louisville. But it was, they again, that was like the template of who we would recruit, how we would bring people along, and, uh, and it, it continued. Let me ask you about your consistency and success that you achieved uh, in college basketball and also at Duke. As you reflect, Mike, on your career, what do you attribute that to? Well, one, I think you have to uh, be fortunate enough to be at a a great university that would attract uh, not just a high level of talent, but a high level of character. And so when we recruited, we did not just look for talent, although that's that's the, that's important. They have to be talented. We looked a second thing, and they're all ones. One A, one B would be: could they fit into this school, this this environment? And the third thing was character. You know, were they good guys? Did were they good teammates? They, we knew they're always the best player on their team, or in the state, or city, or whatever. How were they with their teammates, their coach, their teachers? How were they with their parents and especially their moms? Not every youngster has had a father, but all of them have mothers. And so at the end of the day, we recruited talent with character, not talented characters. And as a result, uh, they got they grew more as men here, but they were already had a good start before we got them. And and then. We worked within our school system in, in our support, and uh, uh, you know it worked. It worked out great. But talent with character was the key factor. Same thing in hiring assistant coaches or people in your infrastructure. People who had character, good people, talented. Who, and I, I use the two words. They would own it. They wouldn't play for or work for. They would actually be Duke basketball. And that's the type of environment. I think if you own something, you'll you'll fight for it more, you'll protect it, and uh, you got a greater chance of winning. 
A couple of things have stuck with me over the years, Mike. When I was down at Duke, uh, when playing in that uh, celebrity uh, tennis and the golf uh, yeah. situation that they had down there, we had that uh, get-together at the sports bar, and about 300 people showed up. And, and one of the things that stuck with me uh, was about the players you recruited, but also how you don't mess them up in the program. And I'll never forget asking you, uh, you know, what is it that you look for? And you told me, I asked a question of either both parents or one parent, and then out of the corner of my eye, I looked to see if the player rolls his eyes as his parent or parents are answering the question. Right. And I asked you, what does that tell you? And you said, respect for authority. And that right. was an impressive answer. Well, and that's what I mean about, um, you know, they already had a head start because somebody – they were part of a team before they came to our team. They understood what supervision was about. They could, they understood what taking orders or instructions or having some level of discipline uh, was was about. And because uh, you know, talent, unless it has all those things, is never going to achieve what that talent could achieve. Would never achieve their potential. But talent with those things, and if you could add to them, goes to the highest level. And then if you can teach talent to work with other talent as one, wow, you, you got a really good team. And, uh, uh, and that, that's the goal. And my belief is that talent makes talent better, especially if – but you have to make sure that they can work together. And um, – so, again, an offense, a defense, all that is important, obviously. But what we're talking about right now is the most important because it sets up whether your offense or defense is going to play as one. The other thing that stuck with me, and I'm still smiling about that every time I think about it, I asked you if you were a goal setter. I don't know if you remember what you said, but your answer was particularly insightful. You said no, and then you told me why. Yeah, I, you know, I I just want to do my very best in everything that I do, and things will take care of themselves. In other words, the commitment to excellence becomes a habit, uh, and, and and so I guess my goal every day was to try my best and and win that day, you know. And all of a sudden, that becomes how you look at it. You have great attitude. You have a great belief in what who you are and what your group is going to do, and then as you achieve, you never say you never have. A, I call it never having a rearview mirror. <laughs> uh, you don't look back on it. You learn from it, but you're always looking fo- looking forward. And uh, so I don't know if that's the answer I gave at that time, but in essence, that's what uh, you know. That's what I believe. You gave me the perfect answer because you looked at me and you said, Ron, uh, if I set a goal of 20 wins, what do I do after right. I win 20 games? <laughs> no, I was being a smart aleck a little bit, I think. Uh, you know, and, you know, thank you for repeating that because I should have said, like, a goal puts a limit, you know, mm-hmm. on you. And that doesn't mean people shouldn't have goals, but I'm saying you uh, – I don't know. I don't want to understate what we might be able to do, because if that goal was 20 wins, and you know, it's the 20th game of the season, and we've won 20, what 
where are we going from there? You know, and uh, so I'm glad I said that. But uh, that was me. That was my younger days. And uh, I, I wasn't quite as eloquent as or I can beat around the bush a little bit more now that I, I've had the 50 years of this. <laughs> We only have 45 seconds before we have to break here, so if we can leave uh, leave it at that before we move on. But I- I'm just wondering, uh, was there a moment that was difficult for you during the 42 years at Duke? The, the biggest moment was when I had a physical and emotional setback in the mid-'90s. had a back operation, came back in a day when I should have been out a month. And uh, we had just gone to seven Final Fours in nine years, and I had a problem saying no. And uh, I was a micromanager, and uh, I got knocked on my right on my back. Uh, and it wasn't just physical, but I had lost all feeling. And it took me about four months uh, I had to take the rest of the season off before I ever got back that the health, but also not just the physical health, but the mental health to go forward. And I changed my leadership style. I became a, a, a person who is not a micromanager. And I, I got rid of the word delegate from my vocabulary. And I brought in a word that I've used for the last 25 years. It's called empower, empowerment. And empowerment given to people that you're surrounded by who are good makes that whole unit a lot better. Mike Krzyzewski with us, and we continue with more of you in Sports Byline. Mike Krzyzewski is with us talking about his Duke career, his basketball career, and he also coached the U.S. national basketball team as well. Just one follow-up to what you said uh, about the difficulty and the challenging time for you health-wise. Tom Butters uh, I understand you wanted to resign, but Tom Butters told you to take a leave of absence. What was it that he said to you? Well, you know, it's the third time he believed in me. You know, Ron, we all get a certain number of opportunities. Some of us get more than others. and But opportunity, which is not backed by belief, is just an opportunity. Tom Butters gave me an opportunity to coach at Duke. We were 38 and 47 my first three years. People wanted me fired, and not him. And he believed in me then, gave me a new contract. And then when this hit me, and I went to his home, I'm crying, and I said, I can't do this anymore. And he said, yes, you can. And he said, you're my coach no matter how long this takes. We're going to get you well. And the the third time, uh, and I owe so very much uh, to him and his belief in me. And that's why I tell people all the time that the four most powerful words in the world, I think, as a leader is, I believe in you and and mean it. And that's what I tried to get across to my players over the years also. You coached your final home game on March 5th, 2022 against rival North Carolina. I thought that was rather appropriate, uh, where Duke lost that game 94-81. And you reached your 13th Final Four appearance, uh, where you lost uh, 81-77 in North Carolina in that final game on April the 2nd, 2022. When did it hit you that you would not be, you know, coaching a team once again? 
Uh, you know, I, I knew at the start of the season that there was going to be an ending. So, I, you know, I, I was so very fortunate. So many people in leadership and especially in coaching have an abrupt ending, you know, where they're not able to say this is when I'm, I'm going to be through. And uh, a, a year, almost, well, over a year before that, my wife and I had already been thinking of retirement, but with COVID and everything, we wanted to make sure the program kept going. And I knew at the start of last season that I, I that was going to be it. And we set up a succession plan. Our president picked the coach, but that coach had to be with me during that year so that he could ha- get a head start in a two-year recruiting process. And so I was ready f- for that. And uh, so uh, I, I, I say that I squeezed every bit of juice, every drop out of, out of my coaching career. And when it was over, you know, I, I was so happy that we were able to have the season we did. We won the ACC. We went to the Final Four. Uh, we lost that last home game, and we lost in the Final Four. My biggest disappointment is that we didn't get a chance to play for the national championship. That would have been an amazing ending. But I'm, I'm a big fan of what President Roosevelt said over 100 years ago, Teddy Roosevelt, of the, the, the person in the arena and if anybody would just look at it's a long quote but it's a beautiful quote i was in the arena for almost 50 years we won a lot we also lost but i always respected being in the re- in the arena and i also respected the other person or team that was in the arena uh and so i was it was an honor for me to be in that arena at that level against North Carolina. I'm sorry that we lost, but I'm not sorry about being there. That that's uh that was uh, that was a great ending. Not the storybook ending that, that <laughs> we would have liked to have had, but a but a great ending. Let me ask you about you coaching the US national team. Winning gold in international play, Mike, as you know, was no longer a given for the United States. In the early 2000s teams, the USA finished sixth in the 2002 World Championship, third in the 2004 Olympics, and third again in the 2006 World Championships. In the documentary Redeem Team, I I remembered how you talked so emotionally about uh, one of those losses. You were an assistant coach for Team USA that won Olympic gold medals in 84 and 92. What did you learn that helped you when you became Team USA head coach in 2005? Well, I learned how great it was to be representing your country uh, at the world level. I mean, uh, obviously, you learn from... uh, coaching or being a part of a coaching staff that's coaching great players with the dream team in 92. But, uh, when I took over and, uh, I became the first national coach. Uh, there was a, a pivot that USA basketball was making because they they felt that a coach needed to be in a cycle, not just coach a team. And, uh, that was a big pivot 
because in making that pivot, then that coach would have the opportunity of not just putting together a team, but the starting to develop a culture. And that's what we did with Jerry Colangelo, who ran USA Basketball and was magnificent in his leadership. And uh, we knew that we had to learn how to play the international game better or as well as the international teams. Up to then, we were just imposing our will of how we thought that game should be played. And so we changed so many things, international scouts, international officials, and we got the military involved in teaching us selfless service. And for the 11 years that I had the honor to coach the team, I felt that uh, uh, we established that culture. And we not only won five championships, but what Jerry Colangelo said, we our goal was not just to win the gold medal, it was to win the respect of our country again, but also win the respect of the world. And I thought the guys that played for us really did that. They not only played the game well, they they showed class and dignity, and, and uh, the world saw that. In your book, The Gold Standard, Building a World-Class Team, you tell the story of rebuilding that national team and the amazing journey of the 2008 U.S. Olympic gold medal team. And I found this quote interesting. You built Team USA by establishing standards, creating a common language, cultivating leadership, forming relationships, motivating and inspiring players, and by maintaining your perspective and charting your own progress as a leader. Was there a key moment when you knew you had accomplished that? Uh, I could see it at different points. And it it started from uh, trying to make sure that each that each person felt that they had ownership. And uh, we talked about the very first meeting with them, that you're not playing for the United States. We won't win unless you are the United States. Okay, you are United States basketball. And so the common ground was not having rules that you either obey or disobey. It was by having standards that we all set by asking them, what do you think? What would be a standard? No bad practices, never somebody late, strong faces, no excuses. And it was all the players saying those things. So they became that. And then uh, having the military involved was huge, huge, where they could see the selfless service of our wounded warriors and go into military installations and where Ron, and this is a, a huge thing. I, d- I wanted them, I said, you're going to hear and see, a lot of people hear and see. Not as many people feel. You have to feel what we're doing. And so having the military involved and talking about these things over a period of time, there were moments where Bob Brown, as a colonel, one of my former players, brought three wounded warriors in where they're, you know, Bob's crying, talking about it, and the Wounded Warriors one, Scotty Smiley, is blind. And all three of of the Wounded Warriors say, you know, no excuses. We want to serve again. My whole team is crying at that that point. You know, and so there's not just one moment. There's a series of moments which created ownership 
that led to the moments where you played. And if we didn't go through those moments, the moments that we played and won a big game or had a big exchange or a shot, they wouldn't have happened. And it's, it was a beautiful, beautiful process. It's, uh, I thank God that I had an opportunity to be a part of it. When you were hired as the head coach of Team USA, you had a couple of questions, and one of them was, would NBA superstars listen to the man who personified college basketball? I thought about that when I read that, and I just wondered when you realized that they would and how you got them to commit to that. Well, you know, one, just so the hiring thing, no one who plays or coaches for USA is paid. They're paid with the the experience of uh, playing for their country or coaching their, their country. Uh, I was concerned about it because I hadn't coached the NBA players as a head coach. And what I found, though, was that all these guys respected the excellence we had achieved at uh, our level. You know, they they follow, they they understand, and then t- just to talk to them honestly. You know, our what two of our standards are: when we talk to each other, we look each other in the eye, and we tell each other the truth. And if we do that over and over again, there's trust. So I just told them the truth all the time, and and we held each other accountable. Like great players want to be held accountable. They want to be coached. They want to get better. And uh, they want to see how their talents will mesh with other talent. And there are many moments in practice or a game where all of a sudden a play that you would never have imagined occurs because they mesh at, at, at that moment. And uh, uh, I loved the, the attitude that our guys had they and and they showed me ultimate respect throughout we only have 90 seconds left and this is not a fair question but when you do reflect back on your life and your career is there a single moment that is engraved in your mind that mike shashevsky will never ever forget well I, i you know this goes way back uh, when I'm 16 years old, it was the moment that determined there are two moments when I was 14 and 16 that determined the course of my, my life. The 14 year old moment was when I was just starting high school my mom sat me down and she told me to get on the right bus. And I told her, I know how to handle the buses in the city of Chicago. And she said, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. You're going to, you're going to drive your own bus for the rest of your life. Only let good people on it. And if you get on someone else's bus, make sure they're good people. And she said, when she wanted to make a point, she would say, Michael. She said, Michael, that bus, those buses will take you to places that you could never get alone. Now, this is a woman with an eighth grade education. That's been the basis. I get chills thinking of it, Ron. The basis of everything. At 16... I had a coach my junior year, Al Ostrowski, and I was really good, and I knew I was really good. He thought I was better, and he coached me the hardest and good, and he puts, he made me go to a different level, and I found that fascinating 
that you could do that to somebody, that a coach could make a talented person even better. And then it was a Catholic school, and I had a little problem trying to figure out religion during that time. And Father Rogue, who became, he just passed uh, at the age of 91, he, he explained religion to me in a way that gave me a good faith base. And at that moment, with those two guys, I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. Mike, I want to thank you for not only what you did in sports, but what you've done in helping people and also the friendship you've shown me over the years. I deeply appreciate it. And watching your career has been a joy for me. Thank you, Mike. Take care. And you're welcome here anytime on Sports Byline. All right. Thank you, Ron. We continue with more of you and America's Sports Talk. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network.